Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hi, folks. Welcome to Making Data Simple. I hope everybody's well, healthy, living the dream. As of this recording, COVID does rage on. I think the U.S. went over 200,000 fatalities, so I'm extremely empathetic for those of you affected by COVID. Today, we're going to have some fun. I've got a great guest, Kathy Parks. We bring you know IBMers in, we bring outside folks in, and Kathy meets both criteria. Uh, she was with IBM in a number of, of different roles, whether program, project, or product management. She knows that business well. Uh, but the interesting thing today, she is now an owner and independent angel investor. And one of the major reasons we have her on is hear more about women and angel investing, talk about leadership therein, and also about the underlying data used to make some of those decisions. You're going to enjoy this. Kathy, welcome to the show. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. I always tear up everybody's background, but I would like you to take the time and do your background justice so the listeners get to know who you are. I uh, started my career in publishing and then uh, transitioned over to work for Kurzweil Computer Products on the Reading Machine for the Blind, and then transitioned to Interleaf on publishing products, doing the software for publishing products. And uh, from there, I transitioned into out of uh, QA testing uh, into project management, and that's where I got an interest for process. And so at that time, Rational Software was just up the street, and they had the Rational Unified process, and I wanted to learn that, and I wanted to work for them, so I went to work for Rational. And uh, in 2003, uh, Rational was bought by IBM, so that's how I got to IBM. How do you go from publishing to project management? So in my publishing experience, I was more focused on being able to write and create my own books. And so the transition from working at a publishing house to working at Interleaf was basically focused on making using the tools that the practitioners use. So I worked in QA so that I was actually refining and um, making the tools that publishing practitioners use, making those better. Anyone who's been a tester uh, or in quality assurance, you get to see the end of the, the process and you get an opinion of how uh, things could be run better. So you don't have as many quality problems at the end. And so that's how I transitioned from testing into project management, because I wanted to manage that process much better and have a better outcome. Now, you've done a few years with project management. So then you got to tell me how you made the transition to angel investing? At the time, around 2010, that was uh, the big push for Software Group and IBM to be doing major acquisitions. We were very active and I wanted to be part of that team. I wanted to be part of that impetus. And so I took it upon myself to get educated and go prospecting for potential um, acquisition targets for the rational portfolio. I was looking at developer tools. I was looking at, you know, DevOps, those, that sort of area. And as I was looking through startups, I was seeing, you know, all leadership uh, teams made up of just men. So mostly, you know, white men. 
and there would be one or two uh, women on there and, you know, it would be the only non-sea level role. And it was usually, you know, the marketing person or it was the um, talent acquisition person who didn't have an executive role. And it sort of, you know, energized me to say, this is a problem, right? We really do need these technology companies to have a more balanced leadership field. And so that's why I started learning about angel investing from the perspective of, you know, how things were opening up to get more women involved in investing in the technology field, as well as serving on technology leadership teams. And I found this group uh, called Pipeline Angels that basically lowered the investment bar for women investors. So you could learn about angel investing and have a small amount of capital outlay uh, so that you could get your feet wet and you could practice in a safe environment. And um, Pipeline Angels was great because it was also a practice environment for new women entrepreneurs, right? Like women who were starting a business, who had never pitched before. It created that safe environment for them to share information about their business, practice pitching, go through the due diligence process of being investigated by a group of investors and created this learning boot camp that uh, a safe environment for both sides of the investor and the entrepreneur. Before we jump into angel investing, so what inside you brings you here? Obviously, you're extremely well-versed in project management Mm -hmm. uh, process, in acquisitions, you now have ventured out into the world of investing. And then there's some threaded social interests, it appears, within that. What's at the core? My investment <laughs> thesis is women-led businesses. And I also invest in underestimated or underrepresented entrepreneurs. The access to capital is um, not even, right? So I have some statistics for you. So 2.2% of the $130 billion total venture capital uh, invested in 2018, only 2.2% of that went to women, even though 38% of the businesses are owned by women in this country. That tiny amount, 2.2%, that's the problem I'm trying to help solve, right? My, my tiny amount of investment is, is trying to go to solve. So obviously, that's the social interest that you have. Mind you, what are the other 35, what, I hope I get my math right, 35.8% of the women do? I mean, how do they get going then? Their businesses don't get funded, right? So that's the problem, right? So, so they just don't survive then? I mean, do they disappear? Yeah. Yes. They don't get funded. They fail. All right. So let's take a step back. What is angel investing for those listening? So angel investing is investing your own money in early stage companies. So there are ways to deploy your capital. You can be a retail investor, like say you buy stock in a public company. You can be a venture capitalist, meaning you're investing somebody else's money into a private company. And if you're an angel investor, you're investing your own money in a private company. So why not be a venture capitalist? That sounds a little less risky. <laughs> because you need <laughs> a, ton, a ton more money, right? So angel investors are usually small investors. Usually the size of the checks would be you know, $25,000 versus VCs are investing millions of dollars. 
How does that work though? If you're investing $25,000, I presume there's a negotiation like we're on Shark Tank or something of that nature by which you're, there's a share of the company that you take. Yeah, for, so, for and there are different um, instruments you can use. So um, it depends on what kind of uh, terms there are. So there could be what's called a convertible note, which is a debt instrument. And that means that you're lending the company a certain amount of money and uh, the note will convert to equity on a specific date at a specific interest. And there will be a, a valuation cap of the company, meaning, you know, it will convert if there is a round where uh, the company is, is valued at a certain amount and you get the opportunity. It, your investment converts to equity at a discount rate of the, the current price of the shares right, in that subsequent round you're lending money to the company. The other ways are equity, where you're um, in what's called a priced round, where you're actually given shares for the amount of money that you're investing. There's a share price, number of shares, and the, the pre-money and post-money valuation will tell you what percentage of the company you have. And then another equity instrument is called a SAFE, a simple agreement for future equity. And basically, that's a contract saying, you know, at some future date, your uh, money will convert to a certain amount of equity. And then that um, instrument has uh, certain terms in it, like a valuation cap and a discount rate and pro rata rights, which is, you know, in subsequent rounds, there's a risk of being diluted because each time the company is valued at a, at a higher amount in subsequent rounds. And so your percentage gets diluted each time unless you chip in more money to maintain your um, percentage. So that's the pro rata rights. Which do you prefer? Is there a preference? I would prefer uh, a priced round, but so far I've only invested using convertible notes. And three of my investments have uh, converted already. So I do have shares. In the convertible note, you're not going to get your money back. It converts to shares in the company. And I presume that these are private shares. I mean, I've got some private shares. I mean, obviously. It's hard to get it out, though, when you need to get it out. Uh, at least I find it that way. Yeah. So if you have private shares, you have to wait for an exit event. And for these smaller companies, the exit event is usually an acquisition. So when I'm looking at businesses, one of the first things I look at is, okay, who are they competing with and who are they partnering with? And subsequently, who would acquire them, right? Like that acquisition is, you know, my exit. If you had your way, uh, all things being equal, you'd prefer a price round. Yeah, I prefer to get shares right away. Is there a reluctance for those that are looking for investments to do the price round, sounds like most of them would rather have a convertible note so they don't have to give as much in terms of shares of their company. Yeah, so convertible note was the preferred um, instrument, and I'm starting to see the, the safes preferred now, the simple agreement for future equity, um, because it's not debt. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there a formula you use? And I guess that kind of brings in some of the data in terms of what you use. Like for me, I'm a stock investor. I guess if I was a great one, you would call it a retail investor. That's me. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> but if 
if I was great, I probably wouldn't still be at IBM. But look, I mean, I have a formula. I look at things like earnings per share, operating cash flow per share, sales, book value per share, look at their trends over 10 years. Long short of it is I have my own calculations, my own spreadsheets, and then I come up with uh, what I call margin of safety, which is typically 50% of what the share price is worth. It's hard for it to get down there, but it does get down there. There's events, as you mentioned, that happens uh, like a pandemic or otherwise, although the pandemic has caused the <laughs> market to go up or, well, at least it hadn't went down uh, as we would expect outside of the, the dip that we saw. Where was that in March? But it did have that dip in March. And then there's opportunities to, to buy. And that's what I'll pull the trigger. I presume you have some sort of formula you use as well. I don't necessarily have a formula because these are very early businesses. Some of them are pre-revenue. They they may be, you know, ideas on paper, right? Like when they're looking for investment, they might be looking for a specific amount of money to fund a specific thing. I need to set up uh, an MVP and I need to go and get customer feedback on that MVP. And I can't afford a marketing person. I can't afford to hire anybody to run that MVP and, and program to get customer feedback, right? So there's some of them are still searching for um, product market fit. When you're an angel investor, you're much more involved with the running of the business from a, a an ideation kind of brainstorming kind of way. Not that you're in the entrepreneur's business or anything, but you're offering help and it's much more tactical. So the kinds of things... I look at are, you know, the revenues they do have, the expenses they do have, what's the cash flow, how quickly will they run out of money, how soon do they need the money, you know, do I believe their forecasts, I look at their like, if they have, you know, a five year projection or a two year projection, do I believe it, what are some of the explanations for why they think they're going to grow by X amount. Do they have any, you know, revenue? Do they have any monthly or annual recurring revenue if they're a SaaS business? What are their customer acquisition costs if they have customers? Do they even have customers yet? What sales do they have? What's the growth rate that they're looking at? You know, do they have any sales pipeline? All of those sorts of metrics are the kinds of things that I look for as I'm doing deeper due diligence into the company. I mean, you're doing this full time? No, this is a part time thing. Very few angel investors can do it full time because it's that's where I was going with it. You must be very, really good if you can do it full time, right? I would love to be able to do it full time because <laughs> it is very fun. It's being involved with these entrepreneurs is so energizing and so exciting. It's, it's really a blast. Is there any idea that you've seen that you can talk about here? I don't know if there's a reason you can't confidentiality otherwise, but. Uh, an idea that has just blown your mind that you say, this is this is going to take off. I'm all about it. I mean, you, it's free advertising if you, if you want to talk about it. Well, I don't want to talk about any of the companies I've invested in because I haven't talked to the um, entrepreneurs to give them a heads up yet. But the model that I like to, the business model I like to invest in is multi-sided markets where uh, the entrepreneur creates a platform for consumers but also for other entrepreneurs to uh, pitch their services or their products, very focused. So I'm seeing a lot of uh, focus around social uh, issues. So for example, marketplaces to match demand for nonprofits who are looking to spin up projects. 
and then also for reaching out to the Latinx community, a lot of their celebrations. And then another thing I'm seeing quite a lot of is AI-based companies to help people reduce the lack of diversity in the hiring pipeline. So there are these application uh, applicant tracking system software for job applicants that weed out any diversity and can actually increase the bias and decrease the diversity of the candidates that you see. I'm seeing quite a few new startups by women to take that problem on and uh, you know address this false uh, narrative around there's nothing in the pipeline for you know women, black, uh, LGBTQ people, right? They're wow. all in the pipeline that you just, <laughs> the algorithms are weeding them out. There's an opportunity for business. That's interesting. Yeah. I got to believe there are a lot of great ideas you run into without market fit. I'm not someone who invests in the product. I look at the problem that someone is trying to solve, right? Like, is it a compelling problem to solve? And is it compelling enough that somebody's going to spend money on it? When I get pitched, you know, this whiz-bang scooter, no, I'm not going to invest in that. Um, and I tell people, you know, straight up, that's that's not what I invest in. Now, how does that pitch go? I presume that uh, is a full pitch, full business plan you sit through uh, today. I mean, is it done virtually? What are the logistics? Pitches are usually done, uh, the ones I've been to, are usually at events where there are multiple entrepreneurs pitching. And so the pitch can run from one minute to five minutes, right? So they have a slide deck of maybe 20 slides and they might present, you know, five slides, right? And then it's followed up by a Q&A. And what they focus on is, you know, what problem are they solving? Who do they think their target customer is? What is the revenue or what kind of traction do they have? And what are their expenses and what money are they asking for? So, so it's pretty narrow uh, during the pitch. You must just love Shark Tank then. <laughs> I do <laughs> love Shark Tank, but... Yeah, you watch it every week, don't you? <laughs> and then again, for fun. Yep. You're like a mini Shark Tank. Yep. You talked about debt, equity, and around equity uh, price round yep. uh, shares, which I would prefer too. That's why I asked that. Yep. Then there's the safe, simple agreement for future equity. I got to believe there's other forms of capital that could come into play. I also, uh, beyond writing a check, I do a lot of mentorship and meet with a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, So social capital is what I try to provide. Like I try to not be a dead end and a connection on a network. I, I try to connect them with other people or other angel investors who might be a better fit for them. So if somebody pitches a business to me that I'm not a good investor for, I I might know someone in my network, or I might know of an angel group that is actually investing in their type of business. And I'll uh, try and do like a warm introduction to get them connected. That's the other form. The social capital is, is what I provide. Are you funded for that? Or do you provide this gratis? I mean, you provide it free of charge. Free. So I have mentorship office hours on Fridays. Uh, you know, I'll meet one-on-one with entrepreneurs. It's usually one time I'll meet with them. But if it's somebody who wants to have like a mentorship for long-term, you know, multiple months, then no, that wouldn't be free. That's interesting. I, I could imagine, I mean, I mentor a lot of people all for free, but they're all like colleagues and different things like that across the business, across the industry. 
But I imagine that would be quite different than holding office hours for new business ideas. That could be fun. I could understand where you could, I mean, you could get more out of it than the individual getting the pitch at time and be a lot of energy. It'd be be refreshing, I presume. Yeah. And it's a learning opportunity, right? Like I'll hear about new trends that I wouldn't otherwise hear about, or I'll hear about other events that I wouldn't have heard of, or, you know, new technologies I wouldn't hear about otherwise. So it's a learning opportunity for me as well. Yeah, I like that. I may have talked you offline and and see uh, if that's something that uh, I should get in. You kind of talked to this, but I'll repeat it again. What investments do you choose or what areas do you choose to invest in? Uh, what businesses are of your interest? You talked about what wasn't your interest. And I presume since I'm a guy, I'm a man, I'm out of your sphere of uh, investments. Is that true? No. If you had a okay. woman co-founder, if you had a woman on your leadership team, I would mm-hmm. consider that. You do uh, prioritize women-led investments or a you know significant positions in the success of said company. That's right. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. So that's your first qualification. Yep. What are the other qualifications that you go through? Kind of back to, it's not an equation, as you said, but it's more along here's what I'm going to invest into. So if I'm listening out there and if I got a great idea, what's going to spark your interest? Well, I have to be able to help you. So I'm not going to invest in anything I don't have some sort of experience in. Like if I don't have any background in bringing drugs to market. So I'm not going to invest in medical or drug discovery or any um, startups around that. I have in the past. I don't feel like I, I bring enough value as you know a mentor or as somebody who has experience or connections that could be of help to the entrepreneur. So my early investments were all learning opportunities. So in retrospect, some of these things I wouldn't have invested in. It has to be something where I can offer something of value besides the check that I write to the entrepreneur. Things around the software stack, things around intellectual property, things around multi-sided marketplaces, you know, impact investment, you know, social justice issues I care about. But there's always going to be a technology component in anything that I invest in. Yeah, okay. So that, you, you just answered my question. There is usually a technology backbone. That's right. Somewhere. If you don't want to say, that's fine too. But how many investments have you made to date? I've made, uh, I believe it's eight now. Uh, So some were direct investments where I invested alongside other angels and some were through um, a fund. Because these are such small checks coming from individual angels, it's a lot of work to pitch for an entrepreneur. And so you want to make sure that it's worth it. You want to get enough money from each pitch. And so angels will combine together and they can in what's called syndicates, or you can invest through an angel investing fund where the fund has an investment thesis. Like um, I'm in one that's uh, all around femtech, right? So technology uh, startups around reproductive health or menopause health, that kind of thing. And so that way, the small checks aggregate into a sizable amount for the entrepreneur so that they can get, you know, 50,000, 100,000 from, you know, 10 angels, five, 10 angels. That makes sense. 
the challenge I would think that you have, unlike the retail investor, you know, the market's fluid. I can get out. If I wanted to pull everything today, I could pull it. With such small checks, and I've done some of this, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, not in the same manner you're doing it. By example, I've, you know, I own, which is probably not the best investment, part of a bank. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. I guess where I'm going with this is it almost sometimes can feel like you're donating because you're starting out small. Like you stated, a lot of these companies are, you know, just ideas. They're just getting started. So for you to achieve or reach that event, it could be a while. So in other words, you're out of your capital for some time. That's right. Typically it's seven to 10 years and some companies just die, right? Like you have equity, you have shares of a company that's dead. When I first started, I started in 2016. So I'm still a fairly new angel. I set a budget for how much I could lose, right? So I, assuming everything is gone, how much can I afford to lose and not jeopardize, you know, anybody's college education or house, you know, you want to make sure you can afford it. I set that um, and then spread that across a number of companies over 2016, 2017, 2018. And then I stopped. In my case, you know, so I'm still waiting for the event, which will probably be a buyout. Now, there are other opportunities of withdrawal. There, you know, co-investors could say, I'll take your stock. Right. But you, what you might find is, <laughs> obviously, they want the stock at a deal, which, you know, I'm not willing to sell that. So, again, I, I remain in for the long haul. So, I, I would imagine you just have to be very clear on how long you're willing to wait and so I guess it goes back to the research you're performing on, you know, competition, uh, et cetera, on what would lend itself to that exit. So you know what you're up against. Exactly. That's where you get into the due diligence process, right? You have to be thorough enough that you feel reasonably certain that there will be an exit that you're not going to totally lose your money, right? Like, in the best case scenario, you'll make your money back, right? <laughs> That's the best case scenario. And so you sort of start with uh, the due diligence with the question of what needs to be true for me to feel safe enough to invest in this? You know, what are some of the questions I need to have be true or reasonably true that I would want to invest in this? And sometimes the first question is, is now the right time for me to invest in this company. Like it might be perfectly good, the company, but it's just not the right time for me as an investor. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like Warren Buffett's philosophy of rule number one, don't lose money no matter what. Rule right. number two, <laughs> pay attention to rule number one. Yeah. But the other side of that is, well, I was looking at some statistics about new companies and something like 45% failed the first five years, 65% fail the first 10 years. I don't know, ballpark. I mean, in your mind, do you have to see all of them as a success? Or do you say, hey, no, if two make it, I'm making money given the investment that I've made? I never saw it as a way to make money. I saw it as a way to um, apply my learning of business formation and business sustaining, you know, business maintenance 
and becoming educated more deeply in how to run a business. So the learning opportunity was what it was about for me. And so for the budget that I set, I'm taking a break from um, investing this year because things are insane. <laughs> and so uh, the budget that I set, I'm you know, having regular contact with those entrepreneurs. And that's the number of companies I can you know, manage with my attention span, basically, across all those companies, having regular checkpoints you know, knowing they're going in the right direction and, you know, offering help where I can. And, you know, I, I can wait, you know, the 10 years. I, I don't need the money right now. And it wasn't so huge that my lifestyle is in jeopardy if I don't make the money. But I'm assuming the money is gone. That's why I set that budget. Like, what can I afford to have go away? And I won't feel it. That makes sense. By the way, I do agree with you. The world, I think, is crazy right now financially. Yeah, I can't find anything that meets a margin of safety <laughs> at this point in time. But all it takes is an event or, or something. Uh, you know, we had, I can't remember when it went down to, like, I think the Dow was at 19 or even 18 in, uh, in March. Uh, it can happen. And it can almost happen o- overnight. But that, again, that's back to the retail investor. You know, we are a data show, though we we do everything. We're a potpourri of whatever we want to talk about. But what data, is there any specific data that you use or you you, uh, filter through in a term sheet or otherwise? I'm more focused on the business itself. You know, like I said, I'm assuming the money is gone. Um, I do look at the terms. I do make sure I have pro rata rights. So my assumption is that these businesses are going to go through multiple rounds of angel and VC investment. So... I try to make sure that I don't get diluted in the multiple rounds. Pro rata rights are the thing I look for. Um, Information rights, like I want, even if I don't have a seat on the board of advisors, I at least want to have access to quarterly or annual or monthly updates from the entrepreneur on how the business is doing. And I also want the right to request that if I'm not getting it in a timely manner. So I need to know, you know, they're continuing to grow their customers. They're continuing to grow revenue. They're meeting other milestones, you know, if they're going for another round of investment. On the female founders and women-led companies, any more statistics you'd like to share with us? And I'd like to ask you a few more questions on that. No, go ahead and uh, ask your questions. First question is, is why aren't we seeing the investments like 2.2% you started with yeah. versus the 38% of women-led companies. I mean, that's quite a differentiation. Is it undetected bias? What is it? People invest in people who are like them. So I would also say uh, a similar effect is in your own network. Look at who you know in your network and look at who you meet with in your network and how different are they from you. Investments... Angel investments are really a relationship game, right? Who do you know? Who are you going to trust? People who are like you, they you are already biased to say, oh, they're like me. I, I can I can trust them, right? Whereas you know someone who's different from you or brings a different perspective, you're already on your guard about. It really is just that you know you're investing in people who look like you. And so we need to, I wanted to have more uh, women 
uh, entrepreneurs supported. So I was willing to put some skin in the game and, and invest in them. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. That's a, that's a terrific point. When somebody comes in, does the pitch for you, what do the best pitches look like? You may have said a little bit of this before, and I got to believe there's a few KPIs that you've got to have, key performance indicators, yep. before you're, you, you know, you're even going to think about it, or you're going to tell them to go back and do it again. I need to know, you know, the thinking behind some of their forecasts, right? Like if they say, you know, hey, I've got two customers and we made, um, you know, $50,000 last month, but we're spending, you know, $300,000. I believe by next month, we'll have a million customers, right? You know, that's, you know, going from two customers to a million in a month, you know, that's just false. Unless they can, you know, justify it, right? So what's the evidence? What is driving that belief that you think you can grow that fast? The best pitches are the ones that really communicate a compelling problem, show a compelling solution, show that that compelling solution has been uh, vetted by real customers who are going to be real users of the solution. Like if I see those three things, I'm interested. Right. It shows that you're you're doing something right and that you just need a little more help and I might be able to help you. How does this process take shape? I mean, how long does it take? You know, what's the timeline? They come in, they do a pitch, say you've got to do due diligence. Yeah, so different angels have different timelines. So a pitch uh, for an entrepreneur, they could be pitching for a year or more, right, to different angel groups. Um, so for each angel group, you'll have a meeting and uh, you'll have a first pitch and you'll have some investors who want to see more and they want to go into due diligence. Some do um, that exploration for about a month. Others take more time. I don't, it, it depends on how much information you're trying to gather. So in that due diligence process, you're not just looking at documents from the entrepreneur. You're going to talk to some of the customers you're going to talk to some of the advisors who work with the entrepreneurs. You're going to um, do some of your own exploration and make sure that they have identified the competitors that you think they should have. Um, you might even look at some analyst reports uh, for trends to see, you know, hey, did the entrepreneur do their homework? You're validating the business, you know, alongside the entrepreneur to make sure that it's viable. Have you ever like pulled the trigger on the first pitch? What do you mean, pull the trigger? In other words, somebody comes in, you've got, they've got a great idea. You think, hey, they're absolutely ready. I don't want to have, I, I want to make sure I invest in them. I don't want them to walk out of here before I get my investment in. It's probably not the nature of what you're doing because you, you already said earlier, you're not looking at, uh, it's not a huge money making scheme for you. It, it's more, you know, principle based, et cetera, which I applaud. But my question is, is still holds. Has anybody ever came in, had such a good idea that you said, hey, look, I'm in? No, angel investors don't do that, right? So that you know, so it's unlike Shark Tank a little bit then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what we don't see on the screen with Shark Tank is they've already had huge amounts of meetings with those entrepreneurs, right? So it is a distilled five, ten minute segment from you know two or three days worth of meetings with the entrepreneurs. So they've already done you know some quote unquote due diligence and some pre-due diligence has already been done by the producers or the team of Shark Tank before they even get on camera. So it's a little bit misleading. Yeah, I like everything. I understand. 
you know, so we got some listeners out there, somebody saying, hey, look, this is very interesting. I have a lot of causes I'd like to invest in just fundamentally. How can they start or where should they go to to investigate whether angel investing is right for them? I would send people first to the Angel Capital Association, which is a group that has a lot of training about angel investing, is a group of angel investors in the U.S. They have a lot of uh, networking that you could look at. Um, You might find um, there are a lot of angel groups in different regions. It's not just all Silicon Valley or New York or Boston. It's, you know, everywhere. A lot of universities have alumni angel groups. So uh, go back to your university uh, alumni association and see if they can put you in touch with someone. Also, universities have volunteer programs where you could actually mentor some startups who might be in a uh, an incubator at the university, right? So if you didn't want to risk any money, but you still want to give back, you could at least you know, mentor some uh, startups uh, affiliated with the universities. Look, this is fascinating. You've got my interest as well. I am an investor. Are you a retail investor as well? I am. I mean, I'm, I'm all over. Do you have a good stock pick for me? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm actually okay. looking for good stock picks myself. Yeah, well, if you if you find one, you know, hit me up. I've got people that I do have a circle of uh, friends that uh, we we share, but it's hard. It's it's slim pickings these days. Yes, I agree. Uh, where can the listeners reach out to you personally if they wanted to to reach out, LinkedIn or otherwise? Yeah, LinkedIn profile is on LinkedIn, and uh, it's uh, KJ Parks is the the name on there. Okay, I will we'll put that in the the show notes. There's a couple of questions I like to always ask, and then I'll play a quick game just to end. And that is, uh, the first question is, is there a, a book you recommend most? For angel investing, I recommend Venture Deals by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. And that is uh, an excellent primer on what is angel investing from the entrepreneur perspective and from the investor perspective. What are some of the weird terms you're going to encounter? What are some of the timelines? What are some of the pitfalls? So that's a really excellent book. Great. Uh, Do you have a second or is that the one? Well, that's the one for angel investing. But for your data audience, I want to recommend us a book that I just finished recently called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Professor Mm -hmm. Shoshona Zuboff. And it is packed with scholarship around how the data platforms evolved, how social media and the attention economy evolved. So it's, it's really a fascinating um, exploration into how we got to where we are today with the social media and, and the data platforms. Terrific. Both those are on my list yep. in an audio book coming near me soon. Yep. All right. Uh, those are good picks. Uh, what do you do for fun? I am running a lot. I'm doing, uh, you know, with the pandemic lockdown, I've had a lot of time to focus on fitness. So I've been uh, focusing on running. I'm uh, testing a uh, an app right now that uh, I haven't decided whether to pull the trigger on subscribing, but it's it's really helping me uh, update my running. So I'm getting up there with the long runs to 10 miles uh, each time. So Ooh. yeah. Each time? How, yeah. how many times a week? So I do a weekly long run, and then normally I'm doing like five, four to five miles a day. 
otherwise. Uh, you must have good knees. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> my knees hurt afterwards for a couple of days i still run occasionally but uh in about four miles is for me yeah. and sometimes five yeah but uh god after that i'm like okay we gotta rest for a little bit yeah all right so here's the game i don't know if you've you've listened to the podcast so you probably know it's would you rather it's like this or that okay so we can kind of see where you what side of the fence so to speak you fall in on all right yeah you ready yep. you game all right you can't stay in the middle by the way you got to pick a side all right. Project management or product management? I know you've done both. Product management. Why do you say that? There is so much more that you have a say over in product management. You can be much more impactful about what you're building, who you're building it for, how you bring it to market, how you message it. There's just so much more meat in that role than project management. All right, got it. Computer science or social science? I know you have a background in psychology as well, at least if my records are correct. Yeah, social science. I think uh, sociology, that kind of stuff, uh, you know, psychology is just fascinating. All right, I think I know the answer to this. You say you're an avid exerciser, but running or lifting? lifting. Running or weight? Lifting, actually. Really? Yeah. You shocked me. Yeah. <laughs> You got to tell me why. So you do both every day or what? I do both every day, yes. But it's hard now because uh, the gyms are closed, right? So I've had to do it at my house. So I'm, I've got some things sort of jury-rigged up uh, in the basement. But uh, yeah. So do you do two-a-days? Yes. I when do you in the morning do? and I lift at night. How long each time? I uh, An hour for lifting in the evening and... Uh, you know, four to five miles in the morning is probably around 45 minutes. Man, you must be in terrific shape. Yeah, well, I like food. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably why my knees hurt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to burn off all the food. All right. Um, reading a book or my favorite, listening to a book. Reading. I like all the, right. physical I actually... book, the physical book. I actually like the physical book. It's a timing issue for me because when I do the audio book, when I'm running, I got to do it like three times. So yeah, that's part of the deal because I daydream a lot. All right. Amazing idea. That Listen to this one. This is the last one. Amazing idea or proven customer base? Proven customer base. Oh, I see. But you're gonna, you may be giving up uh, on the amazing idea that may be the next Amazon. No. <laughs> All right. You answered those very firmly and uh, decidedly. So, uh, uh, Kathy, I appreciate you being on the show. Uh, this has been very informational. I think it's going to be informational for our listeners. And uh, look, we'll take a lot of information from it and, and go learn ourselves. Great. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for being on. As for the listeners, until next time, I will see you on the podcast. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. See you. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, Let's go over and out. Oh.